Colossians chapter 3. We have, of course, been studying the book of Colossians, verse by verse and chapter by chapter, and today we find ourselves in verse 6. We started talking about verse 6 last week. It deals with the wrath of God. The wrath of God is not a fun thing to talk about. This is not my favorite subject to teach on. Uh, You guys could probably guess what my favorite subject to teach on is if you've been coming for any time, but this is not it. But when you teach the Bible, verse by verse and chapter by chapter, you take what comes. That's why we do it that way. Because if you do it any other way, human tendency is to avoid the tough things. And what we're talking about today is a tough thing. The wrath of God, and specifically hell, is what we're dealing with today. This is not fun. I don't take any delight in communicating this to you. I am excited to communicate to you that there is someone named Jesus Christ who delivers us from the wrath of God. I'm very excited to talk about that, and we talk about that week in and week out. But remember that when we're saved, we're saved from something. And we're saved from the power of sin and the power of death, and we're saved from hell. So we've got to talk about some particulars concerning hell this morning. And our text again is Colossians chapter 3. Verse 6 is what we'll speak about, but let's read verse 5 for a little bit of context. It says, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. Let's pray before we talk. Lord, thank you so much for your word that is before us. And Lord, we ask that this morning you would give us great faith to believe your word. Lord, the things in your word are are not always simple, and, and truthfully, God, they're not always super palatable. We do not rejoice in the reality of your wrath. We rejoice in the fact that we can be delivered by salvation through Jesus Christ. Thank you for that, God. But here we are dealing with this subject, and so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to rightly divide your word of truth. I ask, Lord, that you would author my thoughts and anoint my lips, that every word that comes from these lips would be from your throne, and that we would all know this morning that we have not heard the opinions of men, but we have heard the absolute sure and true word of God. And I ask that if there be anyone this morning who has not yet received your forgiveness, is not experiencing your love through Jesus Christ, that this morning you would convict them of sin, Bring them to repentance by your loving kindness and give them the gift of eternal life as they ask for it today, Lord. Bless this Bible study now, Lord, for your glory and the furtherance of your kingdom. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as I alluded to earlier, this is part two. We started talking about the wrath of God last week. And really, it's important that you listen to last week's message to have an understandable working context of today's message. So I apologize if you weren't here last week. I can't recover all those things. But if you weren't here, please get the DVD or the CD or go online and download the MP3 or get the podcast. Do something. But if you weren't here last week, it's very important for our understanding biblically of the wrath of God that you hear last week's message, okay? So if you haven't heard it, get it some way today, CD, DVD, online, podcast, something. Today we have to address the topic of hell. Last week we explored the fact that God's wrath is made manifest in three modes or three phases or three time frames. 
There is first God's wrath as it is made manifest now. There is God's wrath in the temporal future. And then there is God's wrath in eternity. Or said with a little more detail concerning God's wrath now, it's God's wrath that presently abides on all those who have not trusted Jesus Christ for salvation. It is both his judicial wrath and his practical wrath. And you remember that last week was part of your homework assignment to study about his practical current wrath from Romans 1. Secondly, his wrath in the future. We know that the wrath of God would be poured out in the physical realm on the unrepentant in the future during the tribulation period. And we talked about that extensively last week. And you also had some homework with regards to that. And so now the only thing that we'll cover this morning is God's wrath as it is made manifest in eternity. That is to say, specifically hell. Part of the background that we had for this message last week that is so important is this. We address that question that has often been asked and that I think every honest heart is pondered at one time or another. The question is this. How can God be a God of love and yet also be a God of wrath? It's inescapable that that's what the Bible teaches. We're not talking about opinions here. We're here to talk about the Bible. It's inescapable that in the Bible, God is portrayed as both a God of love and a God of wrath. And what we learned last week is that both of those, those two things work in tandem with one another, really in harmony with one another. Because it is the holiness of God and the justice of God that demands that there be the wrath of God. We talked about that extensively. Please get the CD. And in that, we then discover that His holiness and His justice are in harmony with His love. And the place where they all make sense is the cross of Jesus Christ. Where God both demonstrated Himself to be just and that He poured out His wrath for sins, and that sin, were, sin was judged in the person of Jesus Christ. He demonstrated his, ju- his justice, and at the same time, he demonstrated his love, and that while we were yet sinners, he gave Christ to die for us. So those are really not contradictory ideas. They're not contrary to one another. They're wrapped up in the character, the identity, and the workings of God, and they are in harmony with one another. Last week we talked about the present wrath, we talked about the future wrath, and now we talk about his wrath in eternity, that is hell. And so we ask the question, what will hell be like? What are some characteristics of hell? Well, first of all, we need to understand, we we need to be honest with this fact, that many people are denying that there is a literal hell. Of course, many people outside the church, they, they don't want to believe that hell exists, right? Non-Christians, they don't want to think about hell and believe that it exists, and that's no surprise. I wish it didn't. But within the church, within Christianity, there are many Christian leaders and so-called scholars who today are denying that there is a place called hell. Though the Bible clearly speaks about it, they would prefer some uh, metaphorical interpretations. Oh, it's not really, you know, eternal. It's not really as bad as Jesus said. You know, he was just employing imagery and it's just some sort of separation from God, but it's no big deal. Listen, I wish more than anything in the world that that were true. But that's the opinions of men. That is not the teaching of the Word of God. The the, the, the Bible reveals to us very clearly that there is a literal place called hell and that it is, listen, very important, it is a place of eternal 
and conscious torment for the wicked. Eternal and conscious torment for the wicked. Now, I want to define wicked. How would I define wicked? Here you are. Open up the dictionary, a picture of me. Before I got saved. Now, some things have changed in my life. Not everything has changed. I still mess up. But you see, here's the deal. Because God's standard is perfection, God can rightly classify all of humanity as wicked. We just fall so short of his standard and and we we don't always comprehend the the severity of our sin against him. So all of humanity is classified in that phraseology as wicked. Until you come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, I'm blowing it. But you're a savior, save me. I repent of my sins, forgive me. When you do that, you are made positionally righteous. You still mess up, can anybody testify? Amen. (laughs) You still mess up, but you are made positionally righteous. God forgives you, washes you clean, gives you a brand new clean slate. And his mercies are new every morning. So then, in this phrase here that I gave you, hell is a real place where there is eternal and conscious punishment for the wicked, the way that the wicked are defined there is anybody who has not received the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Anybody that has rejected it and rejects it until the day of their death and are classified in the wicked, in the wicked, they haven't been made righteous by the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus came to save people from hell. And so because of that, he talked a lot about hell. In fact, in the Gospels, he talks more about hell than he does heaven. It's not because he likes hell. It's not because he was happy about it. It's because he came to save people from going there. And so just very honestly and forthright, he wanted to tell people, here's what hell is like. You don't want to go there. So we have some succinct statements that Jesus made that describe to us what hell is like. In Mark 9.43, Jesus described it as having unquenchable fire for the person that is there. In Matthew 8.12, Jesus described it as a place of outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew chapter, uh, excuse me, Mark chapter 9, verse 48, Jesus says it hell is a place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I want you to notice what he said. He said that hell is a place of unquenchable fire, out of d- outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, and their worm, you have a personal worm that never dies. Now, I'm telling you, I don't know exactly what that means, but it doesn't sound good. Would you agree? It's not good. In fact, Jesus makes that very clear when he tells us in Matthew 25, verse 41, that hell was prepared for Satan and his demons. Did you know that? It is not meant for humanity. He does not want anybody from humanity to go there. Hell was prepared for Satan and his demons. And by the way, contrary to popular opinion and mythology, it is not a place where Satan is holding court and he's an MC over a big party. It's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, if you did your homework last week, you saw in Revelation chapter 20 that it is a place where Satan is tormented day and night forever along with his demons. Now, there's evidence in the Bible that hell will be a place, as I said before, where there is consciousness of punishment. Consciousness. People are aware 
that they're being punished. This is horrible. Matthew 25, verse 30, Jesus says, Cast out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Doesn't it just have connotations of regret? Doesn't it have connotations of frustration? Because I imagine that there will be people in hell who remember hearing the gospel message. I hope it's not today. I hope that none of you are ever in hell and you remember a six foot six surfer telling you to repent. Why didn't I listen that day? He explained to me very clearly that God is a God of love. But because he's holy and just, he must punish sins. And so he poured out his wrath for my sins on Jesus Christ at the cross. And Jesus Christ rose three days later, conquered sin and death that I might experience eternal life. All I have to do is repent of my sins, turn to God, ask Him to save me, and He will. But there are people that hear that message every single day and they reject it for one reason or another. And so in hell for them, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth that, that I can't even imagine that unfathomable sense of regret and frustration. Why didn't I receive the love of God? Why did I reject His free gift of forgiveness? So, Jesus taught that hell is a place where people are conscious uh, of their torment and of their punishment. Further, Jesus highlighted this in Luke 16, where he gave us a story of a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. And read the story later on. But the potent part for us is this. Jesus says, Now it came about that the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. That's horrible. Very conscious of the torment that they're undergoing. Very real, knowable, experiential torments. Not only did Jesus portray hell as a place where people are cognizant of their punishment, but he spoke of hell as a place where punishment is eternal. Matthew 25, verse 46, Jesus said, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, Jesus gives us two options here. There's no third option offered in the Bible. Your options are either eternal life or eternal punishment. This is not my opinion. This is the Bible that has proven itself to be the true, trustworthy Word of God, has withstood every criticism, every test, every attack against it for some 2,000 years. Jesus said that some will go to eternal punishment and some to eternal life. I want you to notice that for both of them, punishment and life, that is heaven, he uses the word eternal and that those are the only two options. Now, by way of the fact that Jesus gives us these two options, it dispels a very popular idea today, both within the church and without the church. That is the idea of universalism. The idea of universalism uh, supposes this, that in the end, everybody will just go to heaven. In the end, God is just kind of going to be cool about things and just mellow out a little bit and, and everybody's just going to kind of wind up in heaven no matter what they've done or no matter what they've believed. Wait a minute. Please just be logical for a moment. 
Can you imagine getting to heaven and seeing a man like Adolf Hitler there? And Adolf Hitler has not repented of what he did. He has never felt remorseful for what he did. And there has never been justice served for what he did. And yet he simply makes it into heaven because everybody does. That's nonsensical. That's ridiculous. That would nullify the holiness and the justice of God. And then that would mean that there is no justice in this universe. Don't we all count on the fact that somewhere at some time there's going to be justice? I mean, for the perverts, for the child molester, for the world leader that commits genocide, don't we all expect that sometime, somewhere, there has to be justice? And yet at the same time, you want to believe universalism. That everybody, no matter what they believe, no matter what they've done, they just all go to heaven. They do not work together logically, friends. You cannot have your cake and eat it too. That doesn't work. The Bible does not teach universalism. It teaches that there is two options and you get to choose one. You get to choose one. It's your choice today. If you will spend eternity in heaven or eternity in hell. It's all decided upon whether or not you receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ according to what he did upon the cross. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It says in John chapter 1 verse 12, as many as have received Jesus, to them has been given the right to be called children of God. You see, you can't just intellectually assent to the idea that yeah, Jesus is the savior of the world. I know who he is. I went to Sunday school once or my grandma went to church. You must make a personal decision. You have to cognizantly, purposefully say, I'm a sinner. I do bad things. But I understand that because God is a God of love, He draped Himself in humanity, lived a perfect life, died upon the cross to pay my price for sins, and rose from the dead three days later to conquer sin and death and hell and the grave. And the devil, by the way. And then you've got to say, okay, Lord, I repent. Save me. There is also the argument popularly forwarded that eternal punishment is unfair. What we say is, come on, sin is not really that bad. I sin, you sin. If you got skin, you sin. What's the problem? And so it seems to us, and it does, really, in our human intellect, with with our finite perspective, it seems to us that eternal punishment is unfair. But you see, that wrongly assumes that we know the extent of evil done when a sinner rebels against God. We don't know the extent of evil. We don't understand it. We don't have the character of God, the holiness of God, or the perspective of God. We are sinners. That's what we do. So it just doesn't seem so bad to us. But remember, we're not graded on a curve. It's according to God's standard. We, we don't really comprehend the severity of sin. Read to you a quote from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. He's quoting someone else. It says, Sin against the Creator is heinous to a degree utterly beyond our sin-warped imagination's ability to conceive of. Who would have the audacity to suggest to God what the punishment should be? All right, that's a good one. Who would have the audacity to suggest to God what the punishment should be? Who would have the guts or the wherewithal to say to God, eternal punishment isn't fair, God. 
What do you know? Where were you when God laid the foundations of the world? Where were you when He spoke it all into existence? Where were you when He formed you in your mama's womb? In your mama's womb. He always was. He's the beginning and the end. He is the eternal King, God forevermore. He is the judge, not you. And I'm glad about it. He is the one who determines what is right and what is wrong, what is fair and what is just. And for a finite, fallen human with our limited perspective, to dare say it doesn't seem fair to me, what do we know in light of who God is? It's utterly ridiculous that we would put ourselves in the place of judge. What further demonstrates the perversion of man is this. We know that the Bible also teaches about eternal heaven. Very few people have a problem with that. Many people have a problem with eternal punishment. But when it comes to eternal heaven, oh yeah! Yeah, yeah, the Bible teaches that and I totally deserve that. I got no problem accepting that. Paradise, reward, blessings forever. I'm totally cool with that. The perversion of humanity is that in our arrogance, we so readily receive the concept of eternal blessing, but we so vehemently reject the reality of eternal punishment. You see, our our perspective is skewed. Furthermore, if one is to accept the doctrine of love and grace, that is that God is a God of love, and that He's a merciful and gracious God, if one is to accept that doctrine as revealed in the Bible... How can that person then, in the same Bible, see the doctrine of eternal hell and reject it? And that's the basis on which people reject it. They say, he's a God of love. He's a God of mercy and grace. He would never punish people eternally. Okay, well, where did you get the idea that he's a God of love? 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. Oh, the Bible? Yes. Where do you get the idea that he's a God of grace? Well, in the Bible. Where do you get the idea that he's a God of mercy? In the Bible. And where do we see that he determines eternal punishment for those who refuse his forgiveness because of their sins? In the Bible. How how do you receive the one and reject reject the other when the source is the same? You see, if you do that, and many people within Christianity do that, many people. It's a popular thing in the church today. If you do that, then what you have done is you have set yourself up to be the judge and you have removed Scripture as the authority. You've now said, I don't believe Scripture to be right in everything it asserts and I do not receive the authority of Scripture, but I'm going to pick and choose what I like and what I don't like and that's what I'll believe. I'm sorry, you don't have the right to do that. You don't have the wisdom to do that. No man does. Either the Word of God is the Word of God and it is right in everything that it teaches and it is absolutely authoritative and inerrant or it is not. You cannot pick and choose which doctrines you want to believe or reject according to your likes and dislikes and your limited perception. Do you understand that? So many people are doing that. You cannot do that. Furthermore, the conclusion that eternal punishment is just that, everlasting and eternal, is supported by the fact that nowhere, ever, at any time, does the Bible mention punishment for sins as being terminated. There just is not a single passage that we could point to where there seems to be a termination of that place that is described as hell. And so if you reject the concept of a conscious, conscious, eternal hell, you do it 
on the basis that you are doubting the Word of God or you are utterly denying a literal, normal interpretation. Now, there are many people that do that. And one of the most popular things then that they cling to is the concept of annihilationism. Annihilationism, it's hard to say, but it's the idea that claims that after the wicked have suffered for a while, God will annihilate them so that they no longer exist. Now, they do accept, those who uh, uh, subscribe to the annihilationist view, they do accept the reality of a final judgment and punishment for sin, but they reject that punishment goes on forever. And they say that it goes on for a period of time, and then it stops. And when it stops, they just cease to exist. They are annihilated. So punishment is still conscious, but it is not eternal. The Bible doesn't teach that. Another variation on the idea is something called conditional uh, immortality. Also popular today, conditional immortality. It's the idea that God has created people so that they only have immortality, the power to live forever, if they accept Christ as Savior. If they get saved, then yes, they live forever. If they don't get saved, then they just become worm food. They're just annihilated at the point of death or sometime shortly after. But do you understand, logically speaking and biblically speaking, how if if that's the case, that leaves no room for the wrath of God? And then what do you do with all the passages in the Bible that speak of the just wrath of God? And it also eliminates any justice. You see, the reality of hell... Are, you know, the, the, the reality of hell, it helps us to be able to forgive just about anybody. Here's what I mean. Don't misunderstand me. Because it speaks to us that there is for sure one way or another, there is justice in this universe, as I said. At one time or another, there will be justice. That's why the Bible says that wrath is for the Lord. It's, it's not for you and I. And so in that, we're free to forgive because God is the ultimate and he is a fair judge. But if you cling to, if you subscribe to the idea that people are just annihilated at death unless they were saved, then there is no justice I've spoken of earlier. And the perverts, the child molesters, and the murderers that never feel remorse and never repent, they are simply off scot-free. They never have to deal with that. And the justice of God is never met. That would be an incredible incentive for people to just sin their brains out. People don't need more encouragement to sin. We want to sin all the time. That's why we're talking about this subject today. This is very real. A great argument against the annihilationist view, excuse me, is God's justice. Follow me on this. Does the time of punishment that the wicked experiences actually pay for the person's debt of sin and therefore satisfy God's justice? If it's true, as they say, you only suffer for a certain amount of time and then you're annihilated. Does that limited suffering pay the debt of that person's sin and therefore satisfy God's justice? Well, if it doesn't, then most of us intuitively would say, no, it doesn't because only Jesus could pay the price for our sins because he lived a perfect life. If it doesn't, then God's justice was never met for that person and so they should not be annihilated. If it does, if there's some amount that one could suffer in hell and then it paid for all their sins and so God's justice was met, then logically speaking, then that person should go from hell to heaven. 
Because God's justice was met. No reason for them to stay in hell, and it would then be unjust for them to be annihilated if they paid the debt for sin. They should go right to heaven. But Jesus taught in Luke 16 that there is a great chasm fixed between heaven and hell that one may not cross from one to the other. And that it is in this lifetime where our eternal dwelling is determined. It is appointed for man to die once, and then the judgment comes. You see, annihilationism does not make sense at all. It either doesn't satisfy the justice of God because a person is annihilated prematurely, or it doesn't honor the justice of God because the person is then not moved to heaven once they've paid the price. The reality is, no person could ever pay the price for their own sin. It's far too great. We can't do it. There's nothing that we could do it with. The only one that could do it is Jesus Christ. Didn't Jesus say in the garden of Gethsemane? Didn't he say three times, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass before me. If there's any other way for that wicked Brit to be saved, let's do it another way. And yet the Father sent him to the cross. It was not the Jew that crucified Jesus. It was not the Romans that crucified Jesus. God the Father gave him on the cross to pay the price for my sin And for your sin, it is the greatest display of self-sacrificial love the world has ever witnessed. It is unfathomable, it is unbelievable. But if there were any other way, God would have done it. But Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Only Jesus could satisfy the wrath of God. And the cross of Jesus Christ demonstrates The love of God, Romans 5, 8, and 9. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, having now been justified by his blood, shall we be saved from the wrath of God through him? Let me ask you, have you been saved from the wrath of God through Jesus Christ? Man, I am begging you. I hope there's nobody in this room that that leaves this place today without knowing that you've been forgiven by Jesus Christ. He's here today to offer you forgiveness. You're here to hear this message today that as much as we all wish it wasn't true, hell is real. And yet God is a God of love that wants to forgive you and spare you, keep you from, save you from that wrath. Now, should you end up going to hell because you reject the forgiveness of Jesus Christ? You may or may not be excited to find out that Jesus taught that there are degrees of punishment in hell. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 24, he was speaking to two cities on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, namely Bethsaida and Chorazin. And he had performed many miracles in Bethsaida and Chorazin, and yet they rejected him, they didn't believe in him. And he said, Woe to you, Bethsaida and Chorazin, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented long ago. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than it is for you. Thereby teaching us that there are degrees of punishment in hell. Sodom and Gomorrah would be better off, will be better off in the judgment than Bethsaida and Chorazin because they saw Jesus, they experienced the power of Jesus, and they still rejected him. We see the same idea of varying degrees of punishment in hell in Luke chapter 20, verse 47, where Jesus said to the hypocritical religious leaders that they would receive greater condemnation for their hypocrisy and for leading others astray. 
Greater condemnation, or as the NIV puts it, punished most severely, worse than others. And we see this displayed in Revelation 20, 12 and 13, which was part of your homework last week. And that we're told there that people are judged according to their deeds. Those who did worse things will be judged more harshly. God is fair, even in his wrath and in his punishment. And he will judge rightly on that day. And the Bible seems to teach very clearly that there are degrees of punishment in hell. But I don't know about you, but that doesn't make it any more palatable to me. It doesn't make it any more enjoyable to me. Because even though there are degrees of punishment in hell, I don't think there's anybody there that's stoked. Just like I don't think there's going to be anybody in heaven that's bummed. There'll be degrees of reward in heaven. The Bible teaches very clearly that we are rewarded according to our faithfulness with what God has given us, Christians are. There'll be degrees of reward, but nobody's going to be bummed out in heaven. Nobody's going to show up and go, what a jip. This is all I get. This is it. This is heaven. Nobody. It's going to be awesome. Awesome. And there's not going to be anybody in hell going, this isn't so bad. This fire's not so hot. This worm isn't so bad. I don't mind it. No. The fact that there's varying degrees of punishment doesn't make it any more palatable. It is still eternal and conscious punishment. And that is very difficult to accept. Emotionally, it's really too much for us. I mean, who, who can really bear the thought of that? If you really to think about that, we don't, do we? We don't think about that. We can't. We really don't think about that. I don't know that we have to. We, we really don't think about that. It's too much for us to bear. I'm very glad that God has given us a very finite understanding. Because I think if we understood anymore, it, it would break our hearts beyond repair if we understood the reality of hell. It's contrary to our God-given sense of love and a desire for everybody to go to heaven. And if you as a Christian, if your heart is never moved, if you never experience a sense of deep sorrow when you think about hell, then there's a serious deficiency in your spiritual and emotional sensibility. I mean, this ought to bum us out. I'm not asking us to be on a bummer at church today. Come on. But this ought to bum us out to a certain degree. It bums God out. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. Listen to what the Lord says. As I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why will you die? God doesn't want the wicked to die in their sins. He doesn't want anybody to go to hell. He made it for Satan and the demons. He doesn't want people to go there. It gives him no pleasure for people to go there. It declares that very clearly in Ezekiel 33, verse 11. Jesus displayed this when he stood over Jerusalem in Matthew 23, and he wept over the city. And he said, if only you had recognized this, the day of your visitation and the things that make for peace. He stood over Jerusalem, and the God of the universe wept because they rejected him. It breaks the heart of God. When people reject his love and because of his justice and his holiness, they leave him no choice. It's also displayed in the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9. 
where he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh who are Israelites. Paul said here that he is continually heartbroken over his friends, his fellow Jews who have rejected Jesus Christ. He said that he would trade his salvation if he could to keep them from going to hell. That ought to be the heart of the Christian. That ought to be the heart of every Christian. And that ought to motivate us to evangelism. We ought to be itching out of our skin to tell people about Jesus Christ. I know it's scary. I know it makes us nervous. And I know it's politically incorrect, but that's dumb. If you believe the Bible, you know that hell is a literal, eternal conscious punishment for sins. And that breaks your heart. And that ought to motivate us to tell everybody that will listen about the love of Jesus Christ. It's not about shoving our beliefs down people's throats. It's about loving them enough to tell them about the mercy and the grace and the justice and the wrath of God and how they're not contrary to one another in harmony with one another. And if you would but repent of your sins, God would forgive you and give you eternity in heaven. Man, tell somebody about Jesus. It's hard for us to accept this. If it wasn't taught so clearly in the Bible, I wouldn't accept it. But it's taught so clearly in the Bible, we cannot possibly responsibly reject it. There are many in the church today that reject a literal interpretation of hell. And they do so. They do so in the face of the clear teachings of the Word of God. Putting themselves in the place of judge because of their feelings and their intellect. That's not right. You see, to us, things are very relative, aren't they? Sin doesn't seem so bad to you and I. It says in our text in Colossians 3, 6, on account of these things, the wrath will come. The things spoken of in verse 5 and other things. Because of sin, the wrath of God will come. To you and I, sin doesn't seem so bad. But it's a different perspective to God. And you need to understand that when your opinion comes into contest with the word of God, you lose, man. As much as it may be reasonable to you, as difficult as it may be for your heart and your intellect and the way that you see things within your worldview, when your opinion and the tried and true tested word of God come into contest, you lose. If you don't, then you put yourself in the place of judge and you remove the Bible as the authority. And that's a slippery slope that ends in an ugly place. People that do that the first thing that they reject, when they begin to pick and choose what they want to believe from the Bible, the first thing that they reject is the concept of hell being a real place. It's the first one that goes. You always know where someone stands with the Bible when they reject a literal interpretation of hell. They either simply do not believe the Bible or they have rejected a literal, normal mode of interpretation. I need to tell you that here, we believe that the word of God is true, every single word of it. We believe that. Yeah, amen. We also believe God to be right in everything he does. So we need to be careful then not to rebel against these things. As hard as they are, we must accept them and they've got to change our lives. We need to become radical ambassadors of the love of Jesus Christ. I know we all fall short in it, but don't give up. 
Everybody struggles with the question, how can a good God send good people to hell? How many times have you heard that? A lot of times, huh? But that's based upon a false assumption. That's based upon the assumption that people are basically good. It's a false assumption. Society wants to believe that. Philosophy espouses that. Sociologists theorize about it. But the Bible says quite the contrary. The Bible says that people are basically bad. It says in Romans chapter 3, there's none righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There's none who does good. There is not even one. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Social theorists say this. No, 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 no. Man is basically good. It's just that man is in a bad environment. If you could put that person in a good environment, they would show you that they're a good person. Wait a minute, then what about the Garden of Eden? Perfect environment. What did man do? Sinned. First chance it got. Man sinned. I'll prove to you in just a moment, just right now, I'll prove to you with a few sentences that man is basically bad. My mom never sat me down and taught me how to lie. She didn't teach me the ABCs and then how to use a fork correctly and then go, okay, now son, here's when you lie. Here's the sort of look you want to have on your face. Here's the intonations that you would use with your voice. Here's some examples of things you might say. My mama never taught me to lie, but I'm a liar. My dad never taught me to steal. He taught me how to surf. He taught me how to fish. He taught me how to ski. He taught me how to shape surfboards. He never taught me to steal, but I am a thief by nature. When I was a little kid, I went to thrifties and I stole silly putty. (laughs) Nobody ever taught me that. I did that because that is what is inside a person, is sin, to rebel against the God. Nobody has to teach us to be bad. We spend an incredible amount of time and effort and tears trying to teach our kids how to be good. We never have to teach them how to be bad. Is there a class offered in grade school how to be naughty? Can you go to grad school how to be evil? Nobody teaches these classes because these things don't have to be taught. They are in our nature. And that is why Jesus Christ died upon the cross. Because we are sinners who are utterly lost without Him. And so He died on the cross to pay my price and to pay your price. And in light of that, you need to understand... That God does not send people to hell. People deserve hell. God doesn't send them there. They choose it when they reject His love and His forgiveness and His grace. You have all heard about His love and His forgiveness and His grace. I'm telling you, God loves you. He made you in your mama's womb. He chose the color of your eyes and the color of your hair. He loves you. He wants you to know Him. There's just this sin problem. He dealt with it at the cross. All you got to do is say, God, I'm a sinner, but you're a Savior. I repent. Forgive me. Save me. And God will do it. But if you refuse to do that, then there's nothing left for you but the wrath of God. He doesn't want you to experience it. He will not send you to hell. You will choose to go there because you reject his love. Listen, if you reject his love today, I hope that you've got some good, 
good reasons as to why you're doing that. I mean, you had better have tangible, visible evidence that Jesus Christ is not the Savior of the world. You had better be able to show yourself something that proves beyond a doubt that He is not the Savior of the world. Because I'm telling you, He rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. He rose from the dead. It's called Easter. You'll get some candy and some little bunny eggs that day. But the world understands it's about Jesus Christ. And that He conquered sin and death when He rose from the dead. Listen, that is a historical fact. And if you reject that, you had better have some proof. Because nobody else in the history of the world has offered to pay your debt. If you even find someone who's willing to pay your credit card debt, take it, man. Much less your debt for eternity, nobody has ever offered to do that but Jesus Christ. And nobody has ever predicted their own death and resurrection and pulled it off except for Jesus Christ. Therefore, His words have validity beyond anyone else in the history of the world. You can trust every word He says. And He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to heaven except through Me. You say, why aren't there just many ways? Because God wanted to make it very simple lest we get confused. One way, his name is Jesus Christ. Wants to forgive you of all your sins today. 2 Peter 3.9 says that God is not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Please remember that Jesus said hell was created for the devil and his angels, not for you. So I'm going to pray right now. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer if there's anybody in here that needs the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. It's going to be between you and the Lord. Okay, but listen, nobody move. Don't shuffle your papers. This is very serious. It's going to be between you and the Lord. This is the biggest moment of your life. Did you get married? That was big. You have kids? That was really big. This is the biggest moment of your life. We're talking about eternity here. And it's not according to the opinion of any man. It's according to the sure word of God, which has stood the test of time and proven itself to be true. I'm telling you, God loves you and wants to save you. All you've got to do is repent of your sins and ask Him to. I'll lead you in a prayer to do that right now. If you need that, you just pray this in the quietness of your heart. Let's bow our heads. Thank you, God, that you're not only a God of justice and holiness and subsequently wrath, but you're a God of love and grace and mercy. And God, I want that grace and that mercy. I need it. I now know that you love me and I now know that I'm a sinner, that I've blown it. I've tried it my own way. It's not right. God, right now, I'm turning to you. I'm repenting of my sins as best as I know how. I'm turning away from them and turning to you because you're the one that can save me. You're the one that came to save me from hell. And so I'm asking you, God, save me. I believe, Jesus, that you paid the price for me and that you rose from the dead. I believe that you are Lord. I confess that. Save me and forgive me. Give me now eternal life. God, I don't know all that that means, but I know I need it and want it. Be my king. I don't know all that that means, but I know I need you to be. I want it. Thank you for saving me, God. God, I pray that if anybody just prayed that prayer, that you would so flood them with a sense of your grace and mercy right now. 
I pray that they would so know that they are washed white as snow, that they are cleansed, that they are forgiven. Lord, I pray that you'd wash away every sense of filth, of shame, every sense of condemnation, every sense sense of not measuring up and, and everything being wrong and everything wrong that was done to them and that they did to others, that you'd wash it away right now by your mercy, God. You'd expose your love to them in the most incredible way. Amen. Listen, Jesus said that when one sinner repents, there's joy in the presence of the angels. That means that there's a party and there's a celebration in heaven. And it's louder than this. prayed that prayer, make sure that you come up and talk to someone on the prayer team today. Just roll up to them. They're on your right and just tell them, hey man, I prayed that prayer. I don't understand everything, but I know I just got saved. They'll tell you what that means. Yeah, amen. They'll help you get started in your relationship with Jesus. If you haven't prayed that prayer yet, there's still time today. We're not done yet. We're going to sing some songs and God may draw you by his loving kindness. You heard the prayer. You can pray, God save me. And he'll do it. It's not too late, but don't leave this place today without doing it. For the rest of us, we have been saved from hell. Amen. Amen.